running out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man You study him hard and hoping to pass Working your fingers right down to the bone To our show, Talk Out of School on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM and WBAI.org, where we focus on issues affecting schools here in New York City, the state level, and nationally. Our show is also available for download as a podcast. On Monday, pre K and elementary schools in the city reopened for in person learning. Elementary schools in the orange zones with high COVID rates reopened today, and District 75 schools for the seriously disabled students will open tomorrow. December 10th. For those families who had met the November 15th deadline of opting into in-person learning, this represents about 190,000 students out of about a million New York City public school students overall. All middle schools and high schools remain closed at this time with no date certain when they will reopen. Parents who want their kids to attend school in person will have to sign consent forms to allow regular COVID testing and a random sample of all 20% of students and staff in schools will be tested each week. The mayor said that he believes that most kids who opted into in-person learning will be now provided with five days a week learning, though there is real skepticism about this, given the chronic overcrowding of so many of our public schools and the need for social distancing. The same temporary closures of classrooms and schools will occur as before as individual cases arise in, in schools, as identified by the DOE Situation Room. My guest this week is Mark Canizero, the president of the CSA, which is the Principal and School Administrators Union. I have so many questions for him, I'd like to bring him in right now. Mark, thanks so much for being here. I know how busy you are right now, especially. My pleasure, Lainey, and thank you for having me. So the new reopening plan, what do you think of it? And did the mayor consult with you ahead of time? Well, yeah, I mean, he did speak with us um, regarding the elementary schools going back first in District 75. Um, He briefly touched on the uh, of adding more in per- students more time for in-person st- uh, instruction for the students um, but it, you know I think it's important to note that it was actually the principals quite some time ago that started bringing up um, more in-person instruction and these were people that had the room and had the staff and and you know they, they were able to do so and they were asking that question but of course they needed to know how many students they would have on an ongoing basis before they could make any decisions. So there were a limited number of, of principals that felt they could do it and had been asking for some time. And I think that's what that was born out of. So the mayor's plan requires parental consent for testing so that there can be 20% randomized testing of all students weekly. Are principals also, is their consent mandatory? Well, I mean, I, I haven't, uh, first of all, we've been encouraging our members to be tested um, just because we think it's safe and it's good for them, not only in their professional life, but in their personal lives as well. You know, just to know I have some compromised family members, so I've been getting tested as often as I possibly can before I, I visit them. But uh, we haven't heard of anyone refusing to be tested. So it really hasn't come up uh, with an issue. So we really haven't had to have a, a serious discussion about that at this point. Do you know, have, do you have any figures on how many parents have actually turned in their consent forms? Oh, so, you know, prior to us closing down again a few weeks back, um, it was a little less than half of the students that were attended had submitted consent forms. But now, um, because we're moving from every month, testing monthly to testing weekly, 
the students are required to submit new consent forms. So I haven't, I don't have any updated information on that. It's only been a, a couple of days now. So do you have any sense of how many schools you think will be able to offer five days a week learning? Um, on Monday, the chancellor said that more than 150 schools this week out of about 700 uh, will be able to offer five days a week in-person learning, but he expects more starting next week. Do you have any estimates? Right. Well, I mean, look, there are so many factors that go into this. I mentioned briefly earlier, you know, available space, available teaching staff, right? We have, you know, some schools have more teachers that are out on accommodations than others. Um, the number of students that are currently attending in person uh, in, in each school building uh, makes a difference. And parents have to understand and, and need to be on board as well, because when, when you start combining classes in order to bring in the students more days uh, for the week, you're going to have a lot of class changes, which means some students or many students are going to end up switching teachers and, and the parents would need to be on board with that. So I really wish that before the announcement was made and before the declaration of most schools will be able to do this, they would have surveyed the schools and asked the principals whether they'd be able to do this or not. The announcement was made on a Sunday at a press conference on a Sunday, and it was that Wednesday when principals were finally asked if they could do this or not. So I really don't have a sense of, of how many, um, but I'm not quite sure we'll get to most. And, and you know, I, I think, and I also think that set up some expectations for folks that principals are now answering uh, to, to parents about that. In other words, disappointed parents who aren't going to get that. Well, if you um, hear the announcement and you really think that it's going to happen and then it's yeah. just not possible, look, principals want to do it and where they can, they will do it. But if it's just not possible to do, it sets people up for disappointment. I'm, I'm more in the lines of let's under promise and see if we can over deliver rather than the other way around. Uh, last night at a, at a town hall meeting, the chancellor also said that they hired 6,000 new teachers um, to try to deal with some of the staffing shortages. Do you have any sense of whether that, that number is accurate? Yeah, I, I don't know if that number is accurate or not. I don't think that they hired 6,000 new permanent teachers. I know there were a lot of substitute, hire, substitute hires. There may have been a significant number of new hires that would be um, somewhat equivalent to the number of new hires we get every year, um, you know, based on retirements and such. And there were, and there were probably uh, some number above that but I don't have a sense of how many were actually hired. I mean, there was a, a great need for additional teachers because of the way um, we were asked to um, program our schools with different groups of kids, you know, all having a, a different teacher. So there was definitely a significant need. And, and to do that correctly, I think the number was over 10,000 that would have been needed to really do it, uh, you know, with fidelity. So I think a lot of people agree that there are good reasons to bring in the elementary school kids and the District 75 kids first and to prioritize in-person learning for them as remote learning is especially difficult for these groups. And also younger kids are thought to be less likely to become infected and transmit the virus. The letter that the Chancellor sent to principals also mentioned that they should prioritize the highest needs kids in their schools, including those with disabilities, as well as homeless students. Is it your sense that principals are going to be able to prioritize these students? And do you agree with that um, principle? Yeah, well, I, principals have been prioritizing already to some degree, um, you know, where, wherever possible to get the highest need students in as, as often as they can. So I certainly agree with it. It does become complicated in certain areas where 
students with special needs um, that are in self-contained classes, that is a little bit easier when there is space and there is room. It becomes a little bit more complicated for students that are integrated teaching, uh, you know, integrated co-teaching classes and, and um, other groups of students that are not self-contained because they're generally in a class together with general education students. And if the general education students aren't coming in every day, it becomes some, somewhat of a challenge to bring in the students with special needs every day, unless you're able to have the staffing and, and sort of have two different programs going. So that becomes a little bit more complicated, but yes, people are certainly trying to do that wherever they can. And our principals recognize, you know, the fact, the need for students to be in person as often as possible. So there are critics out there, of course, um, that say that the, since the COVID rates are rising fast in New York City and are expected uh, to continue to increase through January, probably, reopening schools at this time doesn't make a lot of sense, even though there appears to be relatively low in-school infection rate at under 1%, and so far, little in-school transmission. What's your view on that? Yeah. Well, I mean, people are understandably anxious. I get it. Um, we went through some a really dark period last spring. Uh, there was loss of life. Um, there, there was trauma. There was a, a serious uh, loss of trust with the, you know, between the city and the Department of Education and families. Um, and so, so I certainly understand. But I'm sort of, you know, I recognize that I'm not an expert in, you know, epidemiology and public health and those type of things. So I'm trying to go with what the experts are saying. And I've done a lot of reading and a lot of listening. And the majority of experts that I've listened to are telling us that schools are safe places right now. Um, so we should be OK. And, and, you know, keep in mind that only about 20 percent of our students, if that now are attending on any type of regular basis and when you're going, when 20% of the students are entering a school broken into three cohorts, right? You're talking about 7% of the students in any given time in a building. So we are able to socially distance. Um, the, the Department of Ed and the city of New York have done an excellent job with providing PPE and, and uh, you know, hand sanitizer and all of the things, the thermometers and everything that we need. Um, so they, they deserve some credit in that respect. So I, I, I kind of think at this point we're okay, but I also think we should continue to closely monitor. Um, there is question about ventilation still. There was an article in the Daily News, I think, yesterday about the fact that many uh, schools are keeping their windows open because they don't necessarily have the right HEPA filter systems in every classroom. Um, have you heard from your members about that issue? Yes, and, and you know, we, we've been talking about this now for quite some time with the city and, and the DOE, and, and the response was, that they are going to be provided with, um, you know, the schools that don't have the proper uh, HVAC systems would be provided with these in-room filters to uh, allow the schools to close the windows and still take care of any type of uh, ventilation that needs to be taken care of. Um, but now I'm hearing again that that doesn't seem to be the case uh, system-wide for the schools that need it. So, I mean, we're in December. We need to get that stuff out. So um, others point out that the vast majority of our students, probably around 800,000, um, their families have chosen the, for those kids to stay home. And there hasn't been enough focus placed by the city on improving remote learning, including getting those students devices and internet access. 
and which will likely widen disparities in terms of the opportunity to learn. Um, what do you think? Has there been a strong enough system-wide attempt to improve remote learning by the DOE and giving support to principals and teachers in the methods that that would achieve that? And if so, what lessons have been learned? Well, I, I, I do think it's a fair critique. Um, I, I think that in addition to the logistics you mentioned about getting the, the devices into, into the hands of students, um, I think one critical piece that needs to happen um, better is a sharing of best practices. I mean, th this I, I look at this as an opportunity in schools for our younger staff who are who have grown up with the technology and and have the ability to take a lead. That's quite an opportunity for school leaders to be able to let their younger, less experienced people shine because they have, you know, in 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 many cases, it's you know, it's not all cases, but in many cases, those are the the faculty members with the expertise and the knowledge, and they can sort of take a leadership role. So. It, it gives them an opportunity to step up in front of their colleagues when they're normally the ones learning from their colleagues. Now they can, they can begin teaching their colleagues, but we need to do a, a better job of spreading the best practices system-wide. You know, you hear from time to time, you see things on social media about teachers doing like this phenomenal work remotely. And you wish that that wouldn't stay in a silo and it could be shared more broadly. So I think it's a fair critique and we do need to do more um, to to uh, spread the best practices in remote learning. So the the chancellor um, insists that um, they have been doing that. They have been doing trainings. They have brought in exceptional teachers to share their skills, and that that's happening um, both at a central level and a district level. But um, most of the teachers that I speak to don't seem to believe. Uh, that that's happening. So that's your impression as well, that there aren't enough opportunities to share best practices, especially with uh, those teachers who are excelling at remote instruction? I, I think it needs to be better communicated. There certainly are, you know, um, there are some people out there that, you know, are making themselves available, but this needs to be better communicated. And, and the, the communication pipeline, I think, needs to go more from the superintendent level to the schools. So the resources need to be provided to the superintendents and then the superintendents are the ones that can make sure that this information is getting out and spread to the schools and the principals can do it at the school level. But when it comes from the top, quite often there are some very good things going on that never filter down and we need to find a, a better pathway to get this stuff more widely shared. Um, so uh, I'm not going to say it's not, it's not there and not happening, but not enough of our folks are, are being given access to it or almost, uh, you know, led to the access to it because people are so busy and stressed right now that to expect them to seek it out, it might not be realistic. And in terms of the devices and the internet, I mean, there was a, there was a big claim last year, last school year that, that, you know, they'd bought all these devices and every student who needed one had gotten one. And then it came to this fall and it turned out that there were thousands of kids who still lacked it. And there was another backlog um, in, in, in ordering. Now the chancellor says every child who needs a device will get it by Christmas time, which seems rather late to me. There's also the question of internet at the shelters, whether they're going to get it, uh, internet access fast enough. And then there's also the issue of iPads, which you know I believe, and other teachers have mentioned this as well, 
that iPads are not the most useful devices, especially for middle school and high school students that have to do a lot of writing and editing and revising. Um, what's your view of, of the issue of, you know, what devices should have been ordered in the first place and whether they've been efficient in making sure that every kid has it, has one? You know, I, I think if you, if, if you look at a, look at this holistically from a numbers standpoint, there have been a heck of a lot of devices distributed and, and put in the hands of children. And if you just, you know, look at a percentage wise, it's a pretty impressive percentage. But when you drill down to families that don't have devices, that is something that's really not acceptable because they need, they can't learn without them in this environment. Um, I, I think some of what happened was we had high school seniors graduate and maybe we didn't get all those devices back. Some devices came back broken. And then you have new students coming into the school every year, you know, into the school system every, every year. So you're going to need to replenish and replace these devices. And then you add on to that the fact that worldwide, we have a shortage of devices because systems all over the world are in the same situation and, and ordering those devices, which puts them all on back order. Um, as far as the iPads are concerned, I mean, look, I, I agree that the, the iPads are certainly not um, the, the best tool to use when you need to submit written work. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, so, you know, if, if Chromebooks and other things can be uh, in their place, I think it's best. Um, you know, there are cost factors involved. And, um, you know, although I understand that that might not be a good excuse, it's 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 a fact. Right. So, um, you know, but we do need to do better. We do need to get the in, in every child's hands. It has to it has to happen. So um, one of the issues that we focus on, as I'm sure you understand, is class size. And this has been a real source of, of dissatisfaction among many parents is that students, many of the students who are assigned to remote classes are, are being subjected to very, very large class sizes of 60 or more, even for inclusion classes with special needs students. We know that the agreement with the UFT allowed for the doubling of online class sizes for students assigned to part-time blended learning. And we also know about the staffing challenges, which make it very difficult um, to program schools with three separate um, um, classes sort of uh, uh, happening concurrently, the in-person classes, the blended learning remote classes, and the full-time um, remote classes. The chancellor has now said that if there are more kids that are brought into in-person learning, that may simplify these challenges and bring down remote class sizes. Do you think this is likely, and, and what, should what should parents really do when they see their kids in a class that's really huge online, which only makes um, the issue of, get, of keeping them engaged and, and, and actually getting feedback um, much more difficult. You know, th this is something that, that we were uh, screaming from the rooftops about all spring and summer long. From, from the time there was discussions about how we were going to staff these schools, myself and my colleagues repeatedly said, you will not be able to have enough staff to do this correctly. You just don't have it. <clears throat> and we were repeatedly uh, assured that we would have the staff. Um, but we then got to a point in time where schools were about to open and there were not enough people 
to teach the students and, you know, within the class science guidelines, including the fact that, you know, you could have up to 60 of the blended remote students at one time. Um, they, they simply weren't enough. So, so principals went out and programmed their school because the students were arriving. They had no choice. So they went out and programmed their schools and they did the best they can. And it resulted in, in lots of oversized classes. Now, whether more students opt into five days a week or not, I don't think that's going to necessarily cure the problem because what will happen then is if now we only have two groups of students, we have fully remote and blended remote. And if in the fully remote classes, you only can put 10 students, that's about the average number of students that can fit social distancing wise. You still now have larger numbers of students that need to be taught remotely. If you have enough staff, yes, that can certainly that can certainly work. Um, but the key, again, is going to be enough staff. So I, I think that our concerns uh, regarding having enough staff and certain class sizes being oversized and, and just trying to find ways around those are going to continue to a large degree. Um, but, you know, like I said, we, we, would, we would dealt this hand and we knew this was going to happen. And, and this is where we are. You know, it's, it's, it's not beneficial to, to or, or not optimal, I should say, to our students or our staff members or, or anyone. But, you know, that's, that's the place we're in right now when you have to socially distance within the building, you're going to create larger classes remotely. And what's your view of the option that some teachers are taking, but um, is happening, I think, more in the suburbs than in New York City, of trying to stream classes while you're doing in-person um, instruction as well to stream the classes remotely, because that would presumably solve some of that problem, but a lot of uh, teachers and also students say that doesn't work so well. Right. Um, you know, I, I've seen it happen around, around the state in, in different places and to, to different, different, different degrees of success. Um, you have bandwidth issues, right? We need to make sure that, that the bandwidth is acceptable. Um, it can and is difficult for students sometimes that are at home to pay attention to a teacher that may be moving around the room. Um, but again, we're not in optimal conditions right now anyway. And we do have a significant number of teachers who have decided to live stream their classes and they're, you know, everybody's doing it to with some degree of success and some challenges, but we also have degrees of success and challenges the other way. The only thing I could say is by doing that, by, by doing the live streaming, it certainly would have reduced the need for additional staff to a degree that maybe we could have managed a little bit better. But again, there, there are positives and negatives with everything. And, and um, I, I don't think any particular system when students aren't are not in school five days a week is going to be optimal. Certainly not. So one of the other issues that we've been very concerned about is the privacy issue. As the DOE has told schools that they must have a shared digital curriculum in all subject areas. And the DOE has very hurriedly gathered lists of, uh, we've gathered, put together a list of, of more than 100 ed tech apps and programs that they're asking schools to use. And then there are over 8,000 more on the shop DOE website that they are also encouraging schools to use. Meanwhile, we don't know how these programs are collecting and using student data. And New York State has a fairly strong student privacy law that 
puts strict limits on how data can be used. It bars the, the use of data for marketing purposes, requires strong security protections, and requires that parents be informed exactly how every program is using and protecting student data, including that a parent bill of rights be posted on the DOE website specifying those protections. And yet um, DOE hasn't complied with the law. There's very little information on their website about these programs, many of which, by the way, have gotten very low grades for privacy uh, from independent evaluations. Um, the state law also requires annual training of all school staff who handle personal student data and student privacy protections. Um, and yet, to my knowledge, that has not happened either in New York City. Are you and your members at all concerned about the proliferation of the use of EdTech apps and what the implication is for student privacy? Okay, so you asked me a lot there. Um, <laughs> so, so let me let me just answer the question about the, the training of teachers. I do know that part of a school's training in the beginning of the year is discussing with the staff uh, student privacy um, and and limiting uh, those type of things. So, so I do know to some degree in that, that that does happen at the school level. As far as what, what the DOE's um, compliance has been, I, I think you may know more than me about that uh, from, from the question. So I, I don't really know. I, I do feel that it's the department's responsibility to vet these companies. Um, if they put it up on the shop DOE website as an approved vendor, principals are um, expected to believe that they've been vetted and, and that they're okay to use. So um, if, they're, if they need to do a better job at that, they certainly need to do a better job at that. Um, we're also in a situation now with so many students learning remotely, it's great to be able to have something that we can um, you know, go to as, as for remote access and be able to use. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm 100% I'm with you as far as they need to be vetted as safe for, for kids and to make sure that the privacy laws are followed. And they should also be vet for quality, right? I mean, I oh, just absolutely. have a sense yeah. that nobody's necessarily doing a very careful job at seeing which are the best tools, not just in protecting data, but also actually helping kids learn. Yeah, well, there, there were definitely some um, that were vetted for quality, I, you know, definitely, you know, I can't vouch for 800, um, but I can tell 8, you that. 8,000. Eight, oh, 8,000. I, no, I, I can tell you that um, there was a, a committee of teachers and principals and DOE folks put together last year, and they did vet a handful of, of companies and um, chose a few as, as being uh, high quality as far as for educational purposes. And I know several schools that are using them. Uh, my daughter's a teacher. She's using one of them that was vetted and approved, and, and she's happy with it. So um, I, I know some were vetted, but yeah, eight, as far as 8,000, I don't know where that number came from. It would also many, be you know. in, yeah, interesting to find out if the privacy issue was ever mentioned when those programs were vetted. Um, right. In general, um, there seems to be a lot of dissatisfaction with the way or Mayor de Blasio has been running uh, New York City schools in, in terms of uh, the COVID pandemic. Most people believe he was late in closing the schools in March when COVID was spiking. And many people say he was late in planning for reopening. And then there was the constant shifting of plans, which I'm sure made it very difficult to principals who had to continually reprogram classes and try to find the resources for staffing. Um, 
at the end of September, the, the, the CSA, your union, held a no-confidence vote in the mayor's leadership and asked for the state education department to take over New York City schools, which I don't know that's ever happened in the past or certainly not in recent years. Can you explain what your thinking was and what led to that vote? Yes. Um, look, you know, we, we were not happy at all to have to do that. In fact, um, in the executive board meeting, it was a very solemn and quiet type of, of discussion and meeting. And, and no one, you know, our job is to try to work together for the best in the best interest of kids. But it had gotten to a point in many of the things you mentioned in the question, um, reprogramming, uh, reprogramming our schools several times. And not just because there was this, um, you know, you know, this need due to the pandemic. Um, like, so for example, right now, pro reprogramming our schools for five days a week, it's a, it's a huge job, but people understand the importance and the significance for children there. So you're not getting as much frustration from folks that can do it. They want to do it for the kids, even though, you know, it, it's difficult, but this was happening on a much too frequent basis because of poor planning that was coming out. So for example, if, if you think back, you remember that parents were first told that the same teacher that their child had in person would be the teacher teaching them remotely. And then it was changed to, well, it's likely to be a different teacher. Well, now we just had to reprogram, right? And then it was changed to, well, it may not even be, you know, synchronous instruction each day because we didn't have enough teachers, which caused us to reprogram. And then after school had started, there was a new agreement that said teachers that um, can teach remotely, that, that are teaching remote students should be able to have an opportunity to, to teach from home. And that's what would have been fine and good had we known ahead of time, but that caused some reprogramming. Um, that, that last piece wasn't communicated to us at all until it was released on a Friday evening. So it was the frustration. It was the lack of communication. It was the, the changing of direction time after time. I mean, our folks hadn't had a vacation. They hadn't had a day off. They had been working 24 seven. They were given things last minute and they were losing credibility with their families. And it was just this sense of frustration that said, okay, right now, um, you know, we've had enough and we need to say something and do something because we just need, we just need some relief here, some clear direction. We're in this for the kids. We want to do it, but people just, they just felt, they, they felt with all of the changes that they were also now being disrespected. And really what they had done is every single thing they had been asked to do. And, you know, it, it got to the point where we said, don't disrespect us. And since then, do you think the mayor got the message? Are you feeling more respected now than before the vote? Well, I, I do have to give the mayor credit here. I mean, you know, we spoke after this and um, look, he, he could have said, you know what, you know, no more discussions with you and and that's it. And, and you know, um, of course, he was not pleased and happy and understandably no one would be. Um, but to his credit. He continued to work with us and continued to speak. And, you know, I, I'm not going to say that everything has been perfect since, uh, but we've been able to at least have our discussions about it. 
And um, we have agreed on, on a number of things as well. So, um, you know, it was a very difficult thing to do. We had to do it. And to the mayor's credit, he said, well, okay, let's move on. So related to that is the issue of mayoral control of our schools, which has reemerged as a hot button issue. Um, in part, I think, because of the dissatisfaction of the lack of planning or the continual shifting of plans uh, um, about the reopening of schools. On December 17th, there are going to be hearings in the assembly on mayoral control, which will either lapse, have to be renewed or amended by June 2022. Do you plan to testify at these hearings? And if so, what, what's your position on mayoral control? Well, okay, so I, I don't find that um, question actually related to the previous question because we're, we're taking a stance and a position on mayoral control that we've always taken regardless of who the mayor is or is not and, and regardless of whether we're happy at the moment or not happy with the way things are going with schools. But our position on mayoral control is and has been that there needs to be some modifications. And we are going to testify in December on the 17th I think I will testify personally on the 17th and talk about some of the modifications that are needed. Um, you know, I, I think that there should be an equal number of representatives on the PEP that is chosen by the mayor and chosen by other people, whether it's borough president, city council, um, CECs, you know, whomever. But it should be an equal number chosen and they should be there for fixed terms so that if they have a... Um, position that they're taking that might not be a popular position, they don't have to fear removal from the board um, because they took that position. So, you know, that, that's, a, that's a key piece. I think it's, it should be a balance as well as fixed terms. And then I, I do think, which we, we, we haven't really put together exactly how this should work, but I would like to see the uh, community education councils having some more say in some of the local um, decisions that are made you know, along with the superintendents so that there can be a little bit more parental input there as well. So perhaps um, having to do with uh, co-locations and school closures or something of that manner? I, I think I think all of those things, I think from um, school overcrowding um, to sometimes the, uh, you know, curriculum decisions that are, are being made to uh, to the, the discipline um, codes of conduct and how they're they're um, enforced and and used, uh, I, I think all I think parents should have should have some say. And I, and I'm not suggesting that we go back to the old days of the school board in in any way, but I'm I'm it, it you know people are feeling disenfranchised now because a lot of folks that are volunteering their time with all of the best intentions to sit on these CECs and and even the PEP to some degree, are feeling like they're there. Um, and it's perfunctory, then, then, then their input isn't really being listened to and heard. And, and we need to do better there because, look, this public education system, um, I, I think we need to restore some trust and we need to, um, you know, try to, we, we're, we're losing children. We need to bring children back. We need to do a little bit better um, with community involvement and engagement so that uh, people understand that uh, they have a say. And we also need to allow uh, the mayor to have, you know, some large say as well in the school system and, and control. And, and if you think about this over the years, when the mayor has a control and accountability, it does help 
with funding schools, right? right? You know, so so there there are some some real positive things that have happened over the years. Uh, I just think that we need to we need to make some changes and modifications. If you think about it, really the mayoral control um, law hasn't been changed since it's been implemented. And there's been very, very slight tinkerings, you know, so I, I think we should do some things now. Right. I mean, that's been our position for a while, too, since the beginning, that uh, no matter who is mayor, no matter what the policies have been, um, the system needs checks and balances. And that's the basic principle of our government overall, that there needs to be checks and balances at every level. And there doesn't seem to be sufficient checks and balances in the system of mayoral control. One of the things I think that, you know, you, your position is pretty much aligned with the UFTs, as far as I could tell from talking to Michael Mulgrew last week. One of the things we also discussed is that one of the um, claims made about mayoral control is that it's much more efficient to have one person making decisions. And that when you have several different bodies, um, there could be disagreements which make it um, less productive. But in the example of what's happened in the last year, I think that you've seen a lot of delays because there's one person making decisions, because whatever the chancellor has wanted to do in many ways have, has had to go through City Hall. And then that one person, the mayor, has delayed in terms of the planning for reopening and then the changing of plans. So um, in some ways, I think uh, checks and balances might make it um, um, a more efficient um, system. Um, Another hot button issue, which I really want to hear your point of view on, is that um, many parents and advocates believe that given the pandemic and the sudden shift to remote learning, um, the state tests for grades three through eight, as well as the regents exams for high school should be called off this year. Um, obviously, we need a, a waiver from the federal government to call off the third through eighth grade tests, um, but the, the regents, the Board of Regents could unilaterally um, eliminate the high school regents exams this year. It would also be difficult to administer these tests remotely without requiring students to uh, install surveillance device, um, um, programs, spyware on their devices. A group of superintendents in Colorado re recently wrote that it is, quote, our overwhelming and energetic consensus that state administered assessments are counterproductive during the current health crisis, and we recommend they be canceled or made optional this year. What's your view, and should the state education department cancel the regents' exams and ask the new U.S. Secretary of Education for a waiver for the third through eighth grade exams? I think the longer we get into this school year, without being in full-time school uh, with all students, the more likely it is and should be that we're going to have to cancel any type of high stakes testing. Um, you know, you mentioned the difficulty of, of doing this online and there may be some ways around it. You know, I'm sure technology experts could help, but it might be too difficult to implement right now. Um, but also how fair is it to our students right now to ask them to take high stakes tests when there are so many other things um, going on that's making it difficult and challenging for them to learn. I think we will see greater disparities among um, children living in poverty uh, because they don't have necessarily the access to the learning that some of the other students have. I mean, students in middle and upper middle class homes are hiring tutors they are um, 
some some of them are fortunate enough to have a parent or a grandparent who might be a teacher and, and is home with them during this time and, and helping them out. Um, but what I would like to see is, is I would like to see some type of diagnostic testing begin to happen so that when we can uh, get back to full-time learning, we'll know where the students are and be able to meet them where they are and, and have some type of, of path forward for them, um, as well as plan out some interven in, uh, academic intervention services and um, you know emotional um, learning type of services and support for, for the students that are coming back after such a time. You know, it's going to be most likely September before we're back in school full-time, and I'm praying that it is September. And if we're back in school full-time in September, it will have been over 18 months since the overwhelming majority, you mentioned something like 80% of our students have had any type of in-school instruction. So we're gonna to need to reacclimate them. So uh, I would like to see some diagnostic testing, but I, I think the longer we go, it's going to be prudent to, to cancel this state testing. So teachers and parents have told me that there are diagnostic tests happening, both the iLearn I, I tests, I think, and the MAP tests have been assigned in many, many schools. Are you not seeing that? No, I, I, think, I think they are being assigned in, in many, many schools. Um, I would like to see, number one, more of it. Number two, when the kids are back in the buildings, to be actually taking these uh, diagnostic exams as well, because there are a lot of challenges for students at home taking them on the computer and whether you're getting an accurate read or not is, is another is another question. But I would also like to see some, you know, uh, locally made diagnostic tests that really just focus on the curriculum, because when we do go back, I think that people are going to have to really take a careful look at all of the state standards and look at the ones that are prerequisites for learning for going forward and really focus on those and potentially even push some of the others to the side because we really are going to need to get our students the prerequisite skills they need to be successful in the later grades, um, you know, come, come September. And, and we're going to have to prioritize. And I understand that there are state requirements and, and all of those things. But to be perfectly honest with you, common sense here has to prevail and, and it's going to be more important to get our students learning and to where they need to be than to say we checked off a box and met a standard. And then there is also the issue which you mentioned of the, the emotional um, trauma that they've gone through and all the difficulties with many of them having lost um, parents or, or relatives and being out of school and all the anxiety that may have caused them. And we don't necessarily just wanna bring kids back to school to give them a lot of tests when there has to be some sort of attention given to their emotional well-being as well. Yeah, that, that's correct. And, you know, I do have to give credit to uh, Deputy Chancellor LaShawn Robinson and um, a, a, an executive superintendent in the DOE, Dolores Esposito. They have done tremendous work in getting, you know, social and emotional uh, learning and, and support out to schools for the last several years, even before the pandemic, they've been doing this and they've been starting out by working with staff. And then after the staff are well-versed bringing in the students, um, because look, we, we all need it. We all need some, some time to reflect and to take a break and to think about what it is that we're doing. And especially in such a time of stress, we, we're, I, I've noticed, you know, even in my own family, sometimes we're a little bit short and quick. I, just because of everything that's happening around us, the world is really just spinning out of control. And here we are trying to, to make sense of it for, for everyone. 
So we, we definitely need that. We've done a lot of work with Dr. Mark Brackett at Yale, who, who um, heads up the social emotional learning unit there. And um, there's, been, there's just been a tremendous amount of work going on and we need to make sure that spreads everywhere because our students are going to need us more than ever uh, when we see them all together again. Um, another hot button issue is admission screens. As you know, um, there's a big move to remove them or lessen them for middle schools and high schools, many of which are, are selective and depend on both test scores and grades. Um, the chancellor last night said he opposes all admission screens, but made it pretty clear that this is something that is under the mayor's control, not his. And people point out that what what actually do grades and test scores mean this year when there are so many disparities in terms of access to devices and access to, um, you know, um, really high quality instruction. Um, do you have a position on that? What I mean, they've delayed the, 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 the announcement for many weeks now about what um, criteria are going to be used for acceptance into middle schools and high schools next year. Um, what's your view of that issue? Yeah, I, I think that people tend to take an either no screens or all screens type of perspective because we've had such a debate about it and everybody wants to protect their position. I think there is definitely room in the middle here. I think that we may have um, too many screen schools, potentially. Um, I think that there is certainly space for screen schools in this system, um, especially the ones that have certain themes and, and uh, different things that can attract students at the high school level. Um, you know, you have, you have students that their particular interest might need to be met in order to get them to go to school every day and graduate high school. So there are, there are some really good things that are out there and they may require screens to some degree. I think we need to look at what screens we're using because I think some of the screens that we are using are, are, are have the unintended consequence, and, and I would like to believe it's an unintended consequence, of separating kids um, you know, based on, on socioeconomic status, race, and, and different things. And that, that obviously is a problem. Um, you know, when, when you have a requirement for a screen school that the parent attend a meeting at five o'clock on a weekday, that may eliminate some families automatically, and, and that's not just or right. The other thing is that there are, a, there are two separate issues here, right? We have the, the specialized high schools and the screen schools, the, the, the two separate issues. And I think they need to be looked at separately because the specialized high schools are three schools in the entire city of New York. Um, and, and Well, there are actually we, more, but the three well, are set by state law. But for whatever correct. reason, the mayor has said he won't change the criteria for the five that are completely under his control. Well, and nobody can really understand that. Yeah, well, that, that's well, that, that's what I'm getting at. If, if that <laughs> needed if 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 anybody really felt that that needed to be changed or looked at carefully, that could be changed or looked at carefully. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's the best avenue either, because only eight schools in the entire city of New York, there could be schools created, you know, that use different criteria as well and, and take a, a large number of people. But this is not a, a um, issue that is, you know, 
all the facts on one side or the other. This is an issue that really people need to sit down and have a, a long look at and try to come up with something that is fair um, for everyone involved. And yet still, when it comes to the specialized schools, still is able to, um, you know, admit students that are going to be successful in those schools. It's not going to help anyone to admit students that are not going to be successful in those students. And there's a lot to be said for, we maybe it is, we need to do a better job preparing our academically gifted children at the lower levels in, in such a way, whether, it, whether it's separately or, or inclusively, making sure that they are challenged in a way that, that meets their needs. So one of the things that you mentioned earlier, which I really wanted to get um, your views on, um, is what happens when the pandemic is over? Um, as you mentioned, many kids are going to need intensive help, especially those who were disconnected from learning for so long. Um, in the United Kingdom, they're instituting a nationwide tutoring program. Here in the U.S., some people have proposed expanding the AmeriCorps program so that schools could bring in recent college grads to help support students. I, of course, would love to see a, a real effort to lower class size to make sure that that all kids, but especially those kids who are struggling, get the attention and support that they need, both in terms of emotional, social emotional support and academic support. The mayor and the chancellor have said they are working on a plan to address these issues that will be announced soon. Has Have they consulted with you and your members about what this plan should include? And do you have ideas about what should be done? Yeah, we, we have not had a conversation yet regarding what this plan should include. And and I'm a, I'm a person that likes to plan well ahead of time, especially in something this large. And in fact, I just wrote a column for my next CSA newsletter telling principals they should begin planning now for next year and, and talking about many of these things. My number one concern for September when we come back um, is will schools have the resources they need to do the myriad of things that they're going to need to do? Our schools just suffered uh, at least 60% of them just suffered some significant register loss and they've been asked to reconcile their budgets and many of them are significantly in the hole and without intervention from the city or the department of education, those deficits are going to be carried over to next year. Wow. And that that's completely unfair to our folks because we sit down early in the year and we discuss the principals sit down with their budget folks and they discuss mm -hmm what their registers are going to look like. And there's a, a prediction from the Department of Ed, and then the principal comes in with a prediction and then his agreement made, and that's how many students they're funded for. And then if that number is more or less, their, their budget is adjusted every year. But this year obviously is different, and people lost a lot of students this year. And that, that budget hole will be something that many schools can't overcome if the department doesn't intervene. And, and at this point, they have told us that they cannot commit to intervening. So that that is number one and absolutely cannot happen if we're going to serve our students the way we need to serve them come September. So uh, I, I think that's something that, you know, we're going to get loud about if if it continues to to move in that direction. But then, yeah, I mean, then there are so many things we need to do when we get back. We need to, again, do, do the diagnostic testing. We need to develop learning plans for each kid, each student. We're going to need to um, really provide some programs for students that need the intervention, whether that's after school, weekend, 
and or summer intervention, students are going to need that. For students that are adept at online learning, we can work on some things they can do at home, no doubt. And that is something that, that this, this, you know, switch to remote learning has, has given us a little bit of leg up on. Um, but we're also going to need to develop plans around social and emotional health of our students. We're going to make sure that the guidance staff is there. Um, we're going to make sure that the, we're going to have to need to make sure that all of the teachers are sort of trained up as well. Like I said, it's been going pretty well in this city, but it's going to have to expand. Um, and, and we're going to have to plan programs for kids that meet them where they are. We're going to have to have special events for the kids more so than ever before to get them back into the social socialization. And I think there should also be a plan to reacclimate students based on the grade level that is coming back to school. If you started kindergarten last September, September 19, you might have done, you know, six months of school and not again for 18 months. So, you know, we need to we need to reacclimate kids back into buildings as well. So this is going to be I you know, people talked about this year being the most difficult and most important one in, in education. And that may be so, but I think next year might rival it, if not surpass it, as far as the challenges that, that we're going to face. Yeah, I think it's just an, an, a huge problem, and hopefully we're going to get state funds and federal funds to do some of the work that we need to do, though we still don't know whether that's going to happen or not. Um, the Carranza did talk last night about the need for more funds to do what needs to happen. And... Um, it's really startling when you say 60% of schools have lost significant enrollment, which would lead normally to big budget cuts. And I, we just can't let that happen. Thank you so right. much for being here, Mark. I really, really appreciate it. I know that this must have been an incredibly difficult year for you and your members. And we appreciate so much that the work that you've done, all the hard work you've done to try to make this year as productive and positive experience for, for, for teachers and kids as possible. I hope you can come back later in the year as well. I'd be happy to, and thank you for that. And it's, it's the people in the school buildings every day that are real heroes here, so thank you. Thank you so much. This is Lainey Hameson, host of Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM Pacifica. Our show, Talk Out of School, is also available as a podcast if you missed the live version. If you hear it through Apple Podcasts, please do leave a review. Also, please consider becoming a WBA buddy to talk out of school by logging into give to WBAI.org or calling 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602. I'll be back soon with another episode of Talk Out of School. Until then, please be careful and be safe, and thanks so much for listening. Back in the classroom, open your books. Keep it the teacher, don't know how mean she looks. Soon as three o'clock rolls around, you finally lay your burden. into the slot You gotta hear something that's really hot With the one you love you're making romance All day long you've been wanting to dance Feeling the music from head to